Transitions are exhausting. So many things change, you end up feeling lost. You can find yourself questioning your relevance and even your worth. Whether you're gaining a new surname or going to a new situation, there are two things I want you to know. First, your roles in life will change, but your purpose is eternal. Second, God has a plan for your life and the enemy has a plot against that plan. I'm Sherry Fletcher, and this is Your Spiritual Game Plan, the podcast for those in a season of transition. And I'm so glad you're here. Stick around and let's work on a spiritual game plan together. Growing up, there was always sayings in the Bible that I did not quite understand. And depending on the version or the person teaching the church class, I would always get different answers. Some of the words Jesus spoke in the Bible are, let's face it, pretty difficult, and it can be easy to skip right over them. But if we say that each word in the Bible is living, then they are relevant. And not being able to think through them can cause us to be like sheep that are easy to lead astray. And that's why I'm so excited to be talking with Dr. Amy Jo Levine today about her book, The Difficult Words of Jesus, A Beginner's Guide to His Most Perplexing Teachings. Dr. Levine is University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies, Mary Jane Wortham Professor of Jewish Studies, and Professor of New Testament Studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School, Graduate Department of Religion and Department Study of Jewish Studies. An internationally renowned scholar and teacher, she is the author of numerous books and co-author of Jewish Annotated New Testament. She has given over 500 lectures on the Bible, Christian-Jewish relations, and religion, gender, and sexuality across the globe. I know you're going to enjoy my time with Dr. Amy Jill Levine, or as she's going to allow us to call her, AJ. I am so excited to have Dr. Levine with me today, who has given me permission to say that I can call her AJ. So how are you today? I'm well, thank you. It seems to me if somebody's going to be reading my books and talking with me that we we don't need that professional stuff like doctor, professor. It just gets in the way. Well, you know, the recorded bio sounds so um, intimidating because you have so many wonderful things to say about in your bio. So I'm, I was like, well, do I call her Dr. Levine? But I'm very glad that we can call you AJ. That helps. Absolutely. <laughs> Just, you know, I, what I tend to think of people who write to me um, and who speak to me about these books. These are my friends. Aww. And the only way we're going to have a decent conversation is if, if we're equal. So if we start throwing in those titles, then we wind up with a hierarchy. I'm, I'm, I kind of like the Jesus, you know, don't call anybody rabbi and don't call anybody father. Just, you know, just be friends and be part of a family. Um, and, and it's much easier to have a conversation then. Awesome. I like that. Well, I would love it um, before we get started, if you would share a little bit of personal stuff, a um, little personal thing about yourself, something new and current, if you're willing to, and where you're at right now in, in your ministry, or are you writing a new book? 
Yeah, I don't really think of myself as having a ministry that that seems too clergy oriented. I'm, I'm not clergy. Oh my gosh, I am so not clergy. Um, I just finished up a new book on the miracles of Jesus, which I'm actually very excited about. It's great fun to, to write because when I first started, I thought people kept asking me about miracles and I kept saying, you can't prove them. Um, they happen to other people. They don't happen to you. They're a problem. But when I started getting into it, my gosh, they're fascinating. And you learn about, you know, ancient healthcare, for example, and ancient views of the body um, and ancient ways that diseases were diagnosed and treated. That's fascinating. So I'm working on that. Um, I'm working on a bunch of articles that I owe people. I'm consulting on a new movie, another Jesus movie. So I'm keeping myself busy. Oh, consulting on a movie. That would be fun. How exciting. Well, it's, it's, it's usually very frustrating. Um, I do this a lot because people who produce movies about Jesus or Mary Magdalene or Jesus' mother um, or Peter or Paul, I mean, they have no clue about the Bible whatsoever, except what they might have picked up in Sunday school. And a lot of that's not really helpful. Um, so I come in and I look at my primary goal is to say, let's make this accurate concerning the depiction of women. Um, and let's make this accurate concerning the depiction of Jews. Because if you don't, then it's going to be sexist or misogynist, or it's going to be anti-Semitic. And there's no reason why a Bible movie would produce something that's harmful rather than helpful. Mm, I love that. That'll be exciting. And we'll have you back on the show for the miracles of Jesus. That will be awesome. So I have a question that I ask every guest, and that is looking back on your life. How far back can you look and see the very purpose you are living out today in who you've always been? I was seven years old. It was February and I was on the school bus coming back from Joe Best Gidley uh, uh, Elementary School. Um, and a little girl said to me, um, you killed our Lord. Oh. And that was this, this kind of major moment. People talk about seminal moments. I, I like the expression ovarial, it's sort of more feminine. It's like, you know, I thought I didn't kill anybody. I'm seven years old. And if you killed somebody, you would know. So I said, I didn't kill anybody. And she said, yes, you did. Our priest said so. This is oh. a Roman Catholic neighborhood in the early 1960s. Um, and I, I thought that the reason priests had to wear those special collars was because if the priest were to tell a lie, the collar would choke the priest, which is actually a very good idea when you think about it. So I said, you know, is the priest dead? Because when you're seven, you don't know. Um, and she said, no. So I, being a logical child, thought, okay, the priest said I killed God. The collar doesn't kill the priest. Therefore, you know, by the transitive property, I must be guilty of, of killing God. I get off the school bus. I'm crying. My mother meets me at the bus and says, what's wrong? And I said, I killed God. And that was the start of it. I could not understand how Christianity, I'm not a Christian. I could not understand how Christianity, which had all sorts of beautiful stuff in it. Uh, my parents had told me that Christians and Jews worship the same God, the one who created heaven and earth, um, that we pray the same prayers, like the Psalms, that we take authority from the same set of books. Um, and that a Jewish man named Jesus and a Jewish woman named Mary were very, very important to my Christian friends. So that, how could this tradition, which was so close to my own Judaism, be saying such horrible things? And I started asking questions. And when I was a kid, I was encouraged to ask questions. Um, I'd come home from school and my mother would say to me, did you ask any good questions today? You know, what, what interested you? What do you want to learn more about? So I started asking questions that afternoon. Um, I was seven then. I'm now 65. I've been asking questions a very, very long time. And I've, I've come over the years, over the decades, to see the, the beauty and the inspiration um, and, and the Jewish context of the New Testament. But I also realized that one can read that book and come out with very strong anti-Jewish attitudes. 
So what, what my life is, this, this was the game plan, right? Um, I think this is why it was put on earth, um, to help Christians read this book and not come out hurting people, whether it's hurting Jews or hurting women um, or hurting people of color because of some of the slavery language or hurting people because they're not heterosexually married or whatever that is, to use the Bible, the old line, um, the Bible to be a rock on which you stand rather than a rock thrown to do damage. That's Ooh, why I'm on the earth. Good. Ooh, I like that one. A rock to stand and not a rock to throw. I wish I had invented that line. I heard <laughs> it somewhere in a sermon. I thought I'm stealing that one. Right. Uh, but but I think I think that's right. Yeah, that is so good. I love that. Um, I was listening to a podcast that you were being interviewed on. And while it was still on, I called my friend who was hosting it. And I was like, do you think she would talk to me? Because I want to get in touch with her because uh, I was fascinated. And so I was so honored that you would take the time um, to talk with me. And the book that we're discussing today is The Difficult Words of Jesus. And I love that you put on it a beginner's guide <laughs> to the most perplexing teachings um so when it said beginners god i was like okay good i can read that <laughs> so before i even right there on page like one or two it says before the reader even gets into this you know these difficult words in your book you remind us that the role of a religious community is not to be like sheep despite all the sheep and shepherd metaphors and so yeah. right then i'm like yes thank you because that's that has been me from the get-go, not to just be a, a follower. I have been a why person. I think I was, I don't even think, I think my first word might have been why. I don't know. <laughs> I know that I drove my parents, probably still do, drove my parents crazy. I know I drove teachers crazy. Um, I, I remember, you know, being sent to the principal's office for being, asking why. I remember telling the principal, I'm not here to debate your answer. I accept yeah. your no. I accept your no. Can you just tell me why you said no? And they got so irritated. They wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> so why do you challenge us to wrestle with these passages and not just graze over them? <laughs> I like the idea of graze over them and thus, thus be sheep. That's a nice yeah. metaphor. Thank you. Um, so there's this old song that, that kids are still singing. I don't want to, I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair. You see, actually the Pharisees were quite splendid. Um, yeah. I just want to be a sheep. And my sense is that Christian children should have higher career aspirations than wanting to be a sheep, right? <laughs> be a dentist, you know, be a minister, be an accountant. Um, I, I think Disciples are, are designed to question. Disciples are not just sponges. Um, disciples do their best when they, they listen to Jesus, then they start asking questions. Uh, it, and if you can't ask questions as, as a student, then you're never going to be able to address them when you're a teacher or when you're a principal or something like that. I can't say I was in the same position that you were. I was a discipline problem in high school because I was, <laughs> I, I was just, I was bored. Um, and so I eventually got yanked out of class um, and I, I wound up doing special independent studies with department chairs. Uh, and <sighs> as, as a response, I, I sort of kept their books for them because I'm actually pretty good at math. So I understand what it is to be bored and disruptive. And I, and I was there and I don't want my students to be in the same position. And I don't want my kids to be in the same position. And God forbid that children in church would be in that position because God forbid they'd get bored. Amen. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Oh, preach. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not a preacher. I'm really not. I'm, I, you know, I, I just like talking about this stuff and I like it when I'm working with a church group or with, with a group of students 
and I'll say something and you can watch, I mean, you can literally see those light bulbs go off. Like, I never thought about it that way. Really? Tell me more. Um, And to give them permission to ask questions rather than to sit there like sponges. What more do you want to know? If you think this happened in this way, then how does that affect your reading? What questions do you bring to the text? How do you see the text being actualized in your own life? How does history help us? All these are fabulous questions and people just need permission to start asking them. Yeah, that was good. Um, this book takes a look at six major verses and others as well. And you that these verses have been abused, misused, and ignored altogether because they're they they cause confusion. Um, they can't be explained in layman terms or even how they apply to us today. And so, even though you have the qualifications to educate me and the listeners beyond what we could possibly understand, um, and I love that. How do we address these scriptures and how should we approach them? Can you give us like some examples of these six? I want to talk about two in in particular, but how can you give us some examples of these? Yeah. Um, So the the chapters, um, I actually address more than six because Jesus has a lot of fairly confusing um, or difficult. But there's like Um, six majors. Right. But six major ones. And I took the major ones from letters that I get from church people saying, help me with this or comments that students have made um, or looking at commentaries and not finding anything that I found terribly satisfactory. Um, so it, it, the easiest way of approaching scripture, and it's not a one-size-fits-all thing because people right. have different concerns, um, is to begin by saying, what does this text mean to me? Not what does it mean, because once you say, what does it mean, like then, then it's like a right or wrong answer. But if you say, what does this text mean to me at this particular moment? Um, then you've got something to work with. And you can't be wrong because it means something to you. And the next step is, it it varies. You might say, well, if I have a community, well, maybe I can bring this to my group, like I have a Bible study group, um, or I have an adult ed class in church, um, or I've got a Facebook page and say, well, here's a verse I've been wrestling with. What do you think this means to you? So you start getting other opinions. And with those other opinions, you can start honing in. If you really want to go to the next step, um, and here's one of the things that I can provide for you. Well, the New Testament is written in Greek. And every time you translate something, something creeps in that doesn't belong there and something drops out that does because words have meanings in context. So you might say, well, where else does this Greek term behind the English translation appear in the gospel? How might that help me as I start looking forward? When Jesus says you have to hate your parents, well, where else do parents show up? Um, Where else does hatred show up? What other family values are we being given? So we can put that you have to hate your father and mother and spouse and so on. How do we put that in the broader gospel context? And that Mm. helps too. How do we understand the history at the time? Um, It's really hard to determine what Jesus intended. I keep having these conversations with Jesus. I also talk to Matthew and I say, did you intend this? And I get responses like, well, I can see where you get it. Um, Because you say something and somebody hears what you say, but sometimes there's slippage between what you meant and what the person heard. Mm -hmm. I know that from lecturing and stuff comes back on exams and I'm thinking, oh my heavens, where did they get that? Um, (laughs) Um, so uh, to, to try to figure out, well, what might the audience have heard? Because we know something about people at the time. So how were they resonating, given, given what they know about, for example, the scriptures of Israel, what the church would call the Old Testament? That's common currency. Um, or given what they know about how the Roman Empire functions. So each time you broaden out from what does it mean to me to what does it mean to my family or my circle of friends or my church to historians, uh, to people over time, what did it mean to St. Augustine? What did it mean to Martin Luther? Uh, what did it mean to, to people in my own church? What did it mean to Ellen White? I mean, variety of people. 
you start getting more and more uh, responses. Mm, that's good. I like that. So like I mentioned, I chose two of the six um, that have been, I mean, all six, you know, I struggled with, but two of them have been my personal challenges. Um, so sell what you own and nowhere among the Gentiles. So, um, so I'll start there with, so look at the difficult where Jesus, he encounters this rich man and these words are often used really to harm. Um, and I think the, per, a lot of times it's, um, used to prove a point maybe. Um, and so reading this chapter of yours was really wonderful. Even though the story does not have a happy ending for that person per se, um, I've experienced that story um, for me personally to cause harm or prove an assumption when it's been used against me. Um, the persons or at the time had an assumption um, in their story. And so their story was not parallel to my story um, because mine might have a different ending. Um, for me, I was always torn because I grew up with um, what some might consider um, much, but I watched what was being done behind the scenes mm -hmm. and how much was being given. And I wondered why God would punish my family or, you know, people would say things about my family about, you know, well, it's going to be easier for the, the rich man or the, uh, you know, the, right. uh, the camel to enter the eye of the needle. And I'd be like, well, why would God punish if, if, you know, people are giving with what they have and they're doing all this stuff good with it? Why would God punish then um, and make that a means of salvation? And I love the questions that you raise about understanding then the questioner and how we see him. And so as I was growing up, you know, maybe maybe he was the child of a wealthy family. And what if it was nothing to do with money? And I see people, you know, use that story. They point their fingers at the wealthy and yet they have areas in their life that they're not willing to lay down and sell what they have either. So is this a story then about money or as you say, a failure to give wholeheartedly? Um, and then I love how you remind us that, that um, saying yes to Jesus it's about our heart. So just kind of open this up. Yeah. Well, it, if once you start asking a question like, is it this or is it that? Um, you, you put the the question the question in, into a trap um, yeah. because Bibles are typically both and rather than either or. Um, the comment to this this guy who's rich in one text, a young in another, and a ruler in a third. So we call him the rich young ruler. Um, it, that's a one-off. Jesus isn't telling Mar Mary and Martha sell your house. I mean, because he needs people who have home hospitality. So it, disciples have a place to stay. Um, Joseph of Arimathea is explicitly in the Gospel of Matthew, a rich man, and, and he does the right thing. I mean, he donates a tomb. That's very helpful. He also has the guts to go to Pilate to ask for the body, which is politically dangerous. Um, Nicodemus is clearly wealthy. Mary and Martha, um, in the Gospel of John, the story of that, that supper uh, right after the raising of Lazarus, I'm in John 12 here, where Mary has like a pound of nard, which is like high-end Chanel. I mean, this is a wealthy family with a tomb, with perfume, with banquet facilities. Um, but for this guy, you know, Jesus, he, he, first of all, he says to Jesus, you know, um, you know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What, what's my purpose? And it, he's, he's probably asking the wrong question. But he's, he's got a sense that he's doing everything right, and there's still a sense of dissatisfaction. 
So there's nothing wrong with what he's been doing. Um, he's, he's probably been taking care of the poor because he says he follows all the commandments. And Deuteronomy commands you, you know, you, you will always have the poor with you, therefore extend your hand to the poor and needy. Um, but there's something missing in his life. And he may be mm -hmm. one of these bored rich kids who's doing everything right and following all the rules. And Jesus says, well, you know, there's, there's one thing that's left. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And in Mark, and I love the version in Mark, he can't do it. And he walks away and Mark says, and Jesus loved him. Mm. You know, it's, it's like, it's, his story isn't done. Um, there's something more there. And if he's young, he's not quite ready to divest. And when Jesus asks him about the commandments, um, they throw in this idea about don't defraud, which is actually not one of the 10 commandments. It's part of like, don't steal, but it's a, se it's a separate term. And that may be questioning this young man, young man who, who has wealth, and you probably inherited it because back then you could rise up the ranks. I mean, you could actually make money, but generally the rich people stayed rich and the poor people stayed poor. So if you're rich, where'd your money come from? How did your father and your grandfather get that money? Who was defrauded in the process? Mm -hmm. If you're making money in a pretty much zero-sum economy, the richer you get, the poorer somebody else is going to get. Have you thought about where your money came from? And if you did, perhaps you might want to start thinking about paying back to people who helped you and didn't make that money. Or perhaps just for you, you really need something totally different. Um, and that would make sense in a first century Jewish context. The people went out to the Dead Sea scroll, uh, to the Dead Sea community, basically gave all their stuff to the community, um, and they're living in a communitarian model. Uh, there's a Jewish philosopher, first century Jewish philosopher, who lives in Egypt um, named Philo, and he talks about this group called the therapeutizing, like therapeutics. Uh, and they pretty much, move, they're like Jewish shakers. I mean, they're living communally. They're sharing uh, prayer together and meals together and praying together. Um, they, they give, uh, they, they don't have slaves. So for some people, that extra little step is what they need. A modern example, um, somebody who becomes a nun or a monk, um, or goes into the Peace Corps and, and takes pretty much nothing, but lives with the people who, who, for whom that ministry is being performed. And that's where the heart is felt. So when finally, when people say, you know, it's like in your heart, it is, but if it doesn't manifest in action, it doesn't count, right? That's the epistle of James. Faith without works is dead. Uh, for Paul, once you have that, that internal transformation, once you accept the Christ as, as your Lord and Savior, and, and for Paul, you, it's kind of theological language, but you move from the realm of Adam to the realm of Christ, like you change, you get a heart transplant. It's got to cash out some way. I mean, literally cash out. And for this guy, it's, it's cash out. It's yeah. not money that defines you anymore. It's the love of Christ and therefore the compulsion to follow him, which means tending to others. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That, that really, it, you know, when I, I read that, um, when I finally got sick of it being a rock thrown at me, yeah. I started reading it. Um, God, what do you want to say to me? And, um, and one day God was just like, you give of your heart, you give of your time, you, this does not apply to you in the way that it's being, you know, used at you. Yeah. And, um, it really, you know, was freeing. Yeah. Um, Think of it as it, Jesus is very good, um, at helping people determine what is getting in the way of what you mm -hmm. need to be doing. Right. Whether it's faith or actually, you know, taking care of your family or doing your, what's getting in the way. 
um, and that was a first century concern. The Stoic philosophers talked about something called adiaphora. Um, and you can see this in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. This, I just think this is so cool. Paul says, you know what? I'm in prison. I'm probably going to get my head chopped off. But while I'm here, I can evangelize the guards, the poor guards, you can just imagine. <laughs> um, you know, and, and if I die, I'm with Christ. Nothing else matters. That's stoicism. So if this money is getting in your way, if money is defining who you are, if being the son of the wealthiest guy in, in Capernaum is defining who you are, that's getting in the way and that's when you need to divest. But if what you have is helping you fulfill your purpose in life, Joseph of Arimathea, Mary and Martha, then you hang on to what you've got, but you make sure your resources are dedicated appropriately. Mm, thank you. That's awesome. So now the Gentiles. I love this one. Um, this has always been, I see it used so much within the church, unfortunately. Um, I don't even know where to go. We could probably fill up a whole entire podcast, uh, us versus them. We have the truth. We have the right doctrine. Um, we have the right understanding. And sometimes I feel like we're right back on to discussing which mountain is the correct one to worship on. Um, so I just love this chapter. Um, I feel like I, like you described one of your students, like we have this mission and we're so excited to just get out there. Um, but we've got to, you know, come back and, and wait and make sure we're right there with Jesus and know the full story. Like you say, um, I, I had never really seen, like you say, there's two state, these, this gospel has in two missions. And I, I'd never even, I'd never heard about that concept. So I'd love it if you would, when it comes to this, you know, the stories of the Gentiles and the two missions, can you explain the two missions and why Jesus did not set up a focus mission to the God, to the Gentiles, as well as how, when Jesus redirects the focus of the great commission and how he acknowledges the relevance of the Canaanite women. Does that make sense? Yeah. Did I make, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and <laughs> And, and it's, a, it's a complicated question. So we're going to yeah. example, right? We're going to take Matthew here because Mark has a slightly different story to tell. Um, and one of the things that I want people to do is notice that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all talking about the Christ, but they're all pitching it differently. Um, because, it, you know, if, if you go to a church and everybody's preaching on the same text, ideally, it's not the same sermon because different congregations near to hear, need to hear a different version of the good news. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are they're basically ministers saying, here's the version of Jesus that I want you, my readers, to consider. And, and the blessed thing is the church gave you a choice. Okay. So here's Matthew. I'm in chapter 15. Jesus has just had another one of his arguments with the Pharisees. Um, and he's off kind of on the border between Upper Galilee and Tyre and Sidon. So think about uh, uh, northern Israel and Lebanon, if you can picture this on a map, um, where you actually don't want to go now because there are rockets. Um, uh, and this Canaanite woman comes out and says, Canaanites aren't supposed to be there, right? They were supposed to have gotten wiped out with Joshua, except they weren't. Because we know in the story of Joshua that Rahab and her family continued to live with the people even to the day when the author of Joshua is writing. So there's still Canaanites around. Uh, <laughs> Matthew, who's just a fabulous author. I, I wrote my dissertation on Matthew. I love Matthew. Uh, Matthew has already given me a couple of Canaanites in the genealogy. It's like Rahab's in the genealogy and Tamar may be a Canaanite and she's in the genealogy. Um, and those women in the genealogy are splendid. So as soon as I know I've got a Canaanite woman, I know she's going to face some certain odds and she's going to get what she wants. So I'm already on her side. And she comes out to Jesus and she says, help me. My daughter is severely demon possessed. And he doesn't talk to her, which is not very Jesus-like. I mean, he basically shuts her down. Um, and he doesn't answer her. And the disciples, and they don't show up in Mark, but the disciples say, the Greek is loose her. So traditionally in Roman Catholicism, the disciples are intercessors who were saying, you know, loose the demon. 
Um, and in Protestant tradition, they're saying, send her away. Text could be read either way. I think the disciples are probably on the right track here. Um, uh, and Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's Matthew 15, 24. And he had already said that back in the mission discourse in chapter 10, um, where he said, he, he's given the guys instructions on, here's how you do it. And he says, don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans. Just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's mission part one. You're Jews talking to Jews. Paul says the same thing to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Jesus doesn't set up a game plan to go do mission work in, in uh, Rome or in Alexandria or in Ephesus or in Corinth, right? He's basically talking to fellow Jews. All right. Um, the woman now, it's three, two, twice she's now been shut down. First, no answer. Second, basically, you're not at my table, right? And, and finally, she says, Lord, she kneels in front of him and she says, Lord, help me. Yeah. And he looks at her and says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And that's a horrible thing to say. <laughs> now, here's, here's where I, the, the questioner said, Jesus, like, you know, come on, you can do better than that. And for all those commentators who say, oh, he said it with a smile on his lips and a twinkle in his eye. I don't think so. When you've got a desperate mother with a demon-possessed daughter who's begging on her knees in front of you, you don't tease. I mean, he's just grossly insulted her and she's given this three times. Instead of just lying there silently and crying, she comes back at him. And she says, you know, even the children under the table eat the crumbs that fall from the masters. You can call me a dog, fine. I'm a dog, but I'm still entitled. And Jesus just stops in his tracks and he says, well, you know, because of your faith, let it be done for you. In Mark, it's because of your word, because of what you said. And what she's, this is so fantastic. What she's doing is she's modeling the Sermon on the Mount. This is turning the other cheek. When somebody, somebody speaks violence to you, you don't speak violence back, but you don't stop either. You engage. You throw the violence back at that person's face. You can call me a dog, fine, but you still have to pay attention to me. This is going that extra mile. This is if somebody wants to sue you for your coat, give him your cloak as well. You, you continue to engage. And it's also a standard literary form that we have in antiquity, that if people knew the classics, they would know this. If people knew rabbinic literature, they would know this. It's sometimes called the tradition of the meat king. And everybody would have known this back then. So what is it? Somebody with a, in a position of authority, like an emperor or a head rabbi, something like that. And somebody with no social capital whatsoever. So a Canaanite woman from Tyre inside, right? Not part of the group, says, I need something. And the person in authority says, I don't have time. You're not at my table. You're not part of my job description. Go ask somebody else. And this person with no social capital, but with gumption, with guts, the Yiddish term would be chutzpah, comes up and says, excuse me, I am entitled. You have to pay attention to me. And the person in authority, Augustus Caesar, Hadrian, Rabbi Judah, the prince says, yeah, you're absolutely right. So it's a lesson to people in authority. Consequently, it's a lesson to the disciples. If somebody who's not in your congregation says, I need some help, you don't say, well, you're not a member of my congregation, so I'm going to pay attention to you. Um, if somebody who's not from your community says, I need some help, and you are the only person with the resources to provide it, you start thinking about what your responsibility is, not just to people you know, in your own community, but to fellow children of God. And it says to people who have no social capital, poor people, minoritized people, uh, people who go unrecognized, you mm. speak up. You're not just a dog. You are entitled. You are a child of God as well. Have a voice and find it and use it, not mm. through violence, but through cleverness and persistence. It's a beautiful story.
That is wonderful. Yes, I like that. It just it wipes out the us versus them. We are the we're up here, they're down there. It just wipes that out. Right. And and we get the double mission. So Matthew tells us that at some point there will be a Gentile mission. You know that as early as the genealogy. You know that from the Magi, who are Persian astrologers, so they're Gentiles. Uh, You know it from the reference to Galilee of the Gentiles in Matthew 4. Um, You know it from the centurion whose servant Jesus heals from a distance. So you know what's going to happen, but it's not time yet because God works on God's own timetable. So the first mission goes to the Jews and the second mission goes to the Gentiles. And Peter and Paul divvy it up too. Peter's the apostle to the Jews. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. It's a different message. Yeah, I like that. As we close um, our time together, I would love it if you give the listener a game plan for acknowledging some of these difficulties. How can we look at the Bible as a book that can help us ask the right questions and also be able to honor the Bible and all the traditions that it holds sacred? Right. Um, Again, there's no one size fits all, but in terms of generalities, some generalities typically work. So what I suggest to my students and, and to churches with whom I work is that the Christian church has, has, gra- has become grafted onto the root of Israel. That's an image from, from Paul's epistle to the Romans. Um, so the church is also part of Israel, not a new Israel, not a true Israel, but adopted into Israel. And traditionally, the etymology, the word origin of the term Israel means to wrestle with God. It's the term that Jacob gets when he has that, when he wrestles with the demon at the Javik River. So to re- how do you wrestle with God? You wrestle with the text. You bring new questions to the text, and you also wrestle with the readers of the text to try to figure out how am I to understand this text, not just as a first century book, but as a, bo- as a book that, that's still in the 21st century, and the meanings will change over time. So you wrestle with the text, and if something sounds confusing, instead of saying, well, I think I'll just move on and like, you know, read a beatitude, um, wrestle with that confusion. See what other people have said. Uh, see what it might be saying to you. Because if a text arrests you, if it stops you and you say, this is hard, I think that might be a a form of God calling you and saying, here's where you need to start paying attention. Here's where you need to do some work. Because in the end of that wrestling, it's possible you'll come out wounded. It's possible that something you held dear is no longer dear. Jacob comes out with a limp. But you come out being a wiser person. You come out being a more informed person. And if you come out being a wounded healer, that's not a bad thing either because you've got the community to support you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. And uh, we will have links so that people can find out more about you and your up and coming books. Um, So thank you very much. Thank you for letting me talk about stuff I like to talk about. What a pleasure. I love the phrase, the Bible is to be a rock that we stand on and not one that we throw at others. Jesus came to be an example and to live the life that God calls us to live by example and one in unity. I hope that you were blessed by my time today with Dr. Amy Jo Levine as we came to know her as H.A. We barely touched on the perplexing teachings of Jesus. So if you want to dig into more of his difficult words, you can find ways to connect with A.J. and links to more of her publications in the show notes. Imagine shifting your focus off of the hard work of trying to prove yourself to the joyful life of knowing your worth. When you join my email list, 
you will get the free download, One Simple Way to Know You Matter Today. You'll also get weekly emails, updates on projects, and other specials that I will be offering. So head on over to sherryfletcher.com, click Join Sherry at the top of the screen, and I look forward to connecting with you there.